Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So I actually got back from Europe last week. I did a crazy quick and crazy jet lag for that matter 48 hour trip of sorts to brussels belgium it's kind of funny actually brussels of course being the epicenter of the european union i actually was kind of there actually i overlap with joe biden i I think i actually literally might have seen the presidential motorcade go by at one point but brussels of course is where the european union is based it's where nato is based it's very much kind of the epicenter of the liberal imperium if you will of kind of the globalist kind of transnational cabal um, and funny enough, actually, we're going to bring on a great guest here momentarily, my good friend Raheem Kassam, who was instrumental in the 2016 Brexit campaign, which was a fundamental kind of anti-Brussels, anti-EU campaign. So I'm sure Raheem and I are going to get into that. But I was over there in Brussels for the NACON Brussels conference, the National Conservatism Conference in Brussels. And the very nature of this conference obviously attracted all sorts of kind of um, pro-nationalism, kind of pro-nation state integrity, EU skeptical types. Obviously, the elephant in the room, I mean, uh, on the European continent, I was just there. The elephant in the room obviously continues to be the ongoing horrific conflict in Ukraine. I honestly am kind of blown away that this is still happening. I mean, if you guys recall, like a month ago, I mean, I've got massive ache on my face at this point. I said this thing would be all over within a, within a couple of weeks. I thought that Putin's oligarchs would kind of ratchet up the pressure, their swift accounts, the financial transactions. They're not going to be able to vacation in the Mediterranean. I mean, man, I was wrong on that. I mean, Putin apparently has a little more domestic support than I than I realized, and I think that a lot of others realized, which is really fascinating in and of itself. But holding that aside, going back to the NATCOM Brussels conference, the conference here was adamantly, of course, pro-Ukraine and anti-Russia, and for obvious reasons, okay? I mean, whether it's kind of, um, you know, Poland or folks in kind of Central Eastern Europe, which I, who I think were kind of overrepresented perhaps at this conference, a, a, a lot of the folks there, for, for obvious historical reasons, are extremely wary of Russian imperialism, of Russia making inroads into Europe. It really was not that long ago, obviously. I mean, I was born in 1989. I was born the year the Berlin Wall came down. It really was not that long ago, obviously, where half of the European continent was under the Iron Curtain, where it was under kind of Soviet communist control. And there is kind of a palpable feeling for a lot of European types, uh, the Poles really, for various reasons, kind of lean the charge on this, that they could be next. Now, personally, my own two cents on this is that this is a little overstated, okay? NATO is a thing. Countries like Poland are in NATO, and it seems to me to be no accident, of course, that Vladimir Putin has gone into Ukraine, which is not a NATO country, and that he has obviously not gone into a country like Poland yet, which is in NATO here. But the broader point that I want to make here is, you know, at a conference like this, again, I was just in Europe, I hear again and again and again, you know, like anti-Putin, anti-Russia. Okay, look, I don't like Vladimir Putin. I don't like Russia as it currently stands a lot here. But as an American, as an American who has witnessed 20 years of feckless, horrifically executed, horrifically implemented, horrifically envisioned regime change wars in the Middle East, 
who here in the United States, we have a very war-weary populace. We don't want to be the world's policeman anymore. That is a profoundly unpopular vantage point there. So from an American perspective, what I would say to my European friends, what I would say to my Polish friends, uh, people in France, Germany, you name it, all across the European continent, if you guys are this scared, okay, if you are this scared that you might be next, depending obviously on how far Vladimir Putin goes into Ukraine, how much territory he gobbles off from Vladimir Zelensky, I have a very straightforward proposal. Why don't you rearm yourselves? Build up your own militaries again. Now, obviously, for a lot of time, okay, post-World War II, it would have been a weird thing, I think, from an American perspective to kind of root for a country like Germany to rearm itself. But we are in a fundamentally different world in the year 2022. And from an American perspective, you know what the most, uh, do you know what the most pressing geopolitical issue is? It's China, and it's not even particularly close. We need to be doing everything we can in this country to turn our eyes, our ears, and our attention more broadly to the Indo-Pacific region. We need to be focusing on kind of building diplomatic ties with India, furthering ties with Japan, South Korea, all the relevant kind of Chinese containment allies there in that region. That is where the future, the 21st century American geopolitical presence has to focus in that region there. And our European allies, you know what, if they are this this scared about Russia, and I don't particularly blame them, to be clear, for obvious historical reasons, then the obvious answer, guys, is stop talking about America, America, America. Build up your own damn militaries, okay? The time for America as the world's policeman is over. Europe needs to rearm itself. They need to do so immediately. But I'm sure our guest, Raheem Kassam, is going to have a lot to say on that front. So stay with us. We will be right back with Raheem. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back. So we have my buddy Raheem Kassam joining us. Raheem is the editor-in-chief of The National Pulse, just a very well-known conservative commentator in his own right. Raheem, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Josh. You know, I'm a long-time listener now, I suppose you would say, and a big <laughs> fan of the show, so appreciate it. Yeah, no, you've been one of my friends who's been on this since the very first episode that we did back with Michael Knowles, so thank you so much for all you're, all you're doing. Just great to have you here. So, Raheem, you've also written a few articles for me. So, you know, I obviously run the Newsweek op-ed section as well as hosting this podcast. And you wrote a really, really, really good piece on Russia-Ukraine way, way kind of towards the beginning of the outset there. You submitted this piece with the hilarious title, Borscht Iraq, which my editor has decided not to take. We went with a more mainstream title. Tell us what you meant by that. What did you see as the fisticuffs were starting to get going here? What did you see that was potentially harrowing or off-putting right there at the beginning? Well, and if I might say so, probably the only the only lapse in judgment I've ever seen from you is losing that headline. <laughs> so, um, look, the the point of of that, and and it was it was sardonic, of course, but the point in it was was exactly what we're seeing playing out now, right? Which is this 
we've been made to believe or asked to believe or threatened to believe that you know the 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 russian army expected to march into ukraine uh take everything within about 12 minutes um and then we would be in a whole different you know ball game as it came to negotiations and and you know cross atlantic threats and and all of that and actually you know nobody really seriously thought that nobody i know seriously thought that nobody i have been speaking to in um you know who were doing these nato war games over the last several months uh thought that they did think they did think um that there wouldn't be a nato response and that nato doesn't actually have uh the readiness capability or public will behind nato member countries to respond but we were asked to believe this thing about very quick and every side kind of expected it to be very quick and it was never going to be that I mean, it was never going to be that when you look at the, the, you know, the Ukrainian military and the things that they have been receiving in support and arms for so long. You, you would never believe it if you actually met any Ukrainians. Uh, I was there in, in, in during the Madan revolution in 2014. And, and, you know, the stories about these people and their resolve to keep their sovereign nation, those stories are correct. Um, and so the idea that this was going to be a quick altercation was a nonsense the reason it's borscht Iraq is because the idea that, you know, you can get, you could have got in and out in a, of Iraq quickly, you know, have that nation building going on in the background. And I still see nowadays, I mean, I was at the George uh, Bush presidential library um, here in Dallas. Oh, sure. I've been there too. Yeah. Ago. Yeah. yeah. And I was watching all of these sequences that they had up on the wall about the enduring nature of Iraqi democracy and, how it's a beacon in the region. And I just thought to myself, you know, this is a, you know, this is a cataclysmic joke. This isn't just a bad joke. And um, so that's, that's why Ukraine represents the very same thing for me. I mean, I said, I said before in December, November, I said, you know, even Putin realizes that, that this altercation is nothing short of a 20 year altercation. Um, and it's really, really nothing short of a 50-year altercation if we already consider the past in all of this. Yeah, so I, I think the Bush presidential library segue is actually a perfect kind of launching off point to what I want to talk about next, which is you have seen here the kind of rise from the dead, the rise from kind of the zombie part of the human id, if you will, the old neoconservatives. It's kind of as if they've seen nothing and learned nothing. I mean, I feel like all of my Twitter feed, you know, I mean, I saw John Podharis, the editor of Commentary Magazine, who wrote a piece a couple weeks ago basically saying neoconservatism's vindication moment. Even on kind of, you know, uh, mainstream kind of right of center cable news, uh, mainstream right of center websites, you know, it seems that like we're kind of just going back to the pre-2016 status quo ante, the way it was before Trump. It's almost as if the Trump presidency didn't happen and if the entire kind of Trump more realist foreign policy doctrine just never existed. I mean, are, are you seeing the same thing that I'm seeing and does it worry you? Oh, I, so I did an entire, I think, over an hour's worth of a live stream on Getter about this a few weeks ago, specifically talking about, you know, the return of, of neoconservatism and why. Right. Uh, I happen to believe that all. Uh, one, look, one of the first things I said in 2016 when Trump got into office, as I said, you have to take over the National Endowment for Democracy, this this congressionally funded, um, you know, pro-democracy juggernaut that is really does a lot of the um, foreign interference legwork that the CIA used to do. Right. And they never did that. 
I say that you have to set up a new institution dedicated to foreign policy surrounding the nation state and the idea of the nation state. And I wanted to call it the Westphalia Institute and nobody ever pursued that. <laughs> and so when we when we say, you know, that the, 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 the Trump doctrine hasn't managed to stick around, that's because nobody ever took a step to do that, right. they never actually tried to formalize it, institutionalize it, you know, even memorialize it. So There's what, no is, what is the Trump doctrine as you understand it, Raheem? What, what were he and his inner circle of, of the actual legit kind of more aligned folks in the National Security Council in the White House? What were they actually getting at as far as what foreign policy should be? You know, to put it simply, I believe the Trump doctrine was F around and find out. Um, and I think we could, no, I mean, really, really, I mean, you could, you could genuinely, you know, sort of, uh, you know, bottle it up like that. Um, this was about, this was about prioritizing America's, uh, values, America's problems at home. It was about shifting, you know, in a, in a very sort of Hamiltonian way, right. Manufacturing back to the United States, um, putting, putting the shoulder to the wheel of American institutions to the concerns of the American public. And of course, what, what do the neocons want? Well, they want the total and complete and utter opposite of that. So when you look at people who are emerging now as political candidates, congressional candidates, Senate candidates, you look at the types of people we're seeing on television now. Yeah, it feels like it's 2002 again. Right. And it feels like for some reason I, I keep going through this in my mind, Josh, and I cannot believe it. Right. We, we are now. Uh, at the behest, once again, of the very same political, bureaucratic and military class that lost the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. They were losses. They were not victories. They were losses. They were losses for America. They were losses for the Western coalition. We lost way more than we put into those endeavors. And we came out looking like fools, morons, idiots uh, and, and evil to a lot of the world, quite frankly, which is not who we are as a people. And... We're doing the same thing again, and we're allowing the same people again to run those operations. And I just think to myself, you know, how, you know, how many times does this need to happen? And that's why I've been doing a lot of research around this. I mean, I wrote in that article for you, right? You talked about not learning just now. You talked about the neocons not learning. The beginning of my article, Josh, was about this quote about uh, uh, from Orwell, actually, from, from a, a book called The Lion and the Unicorn. Um, which is actually about English socialism, but it talks about the English upper class and the English political elite. And it says how unteachable, unteachable these people can be. And I fear that's what's, you know, metastasized here in America, too. It's this unteachable class of people. Um, I, I'm, I'm very deeply concerned about it. You and I both, man. I mean, you know, I saw this essay. I think I texted you and our mutual friend, Jack Pasobek. It was this essay written by Elliot Cohen. It was at The Atlantic. And I don't remember what the exact line was that really kind of triggered me. But to paraphrase, it basically said that America must get involved in the Ukrainian conflict more than it currently is, not just for the integrity of Ukraine as a sovereign entity, not just for the security of Europe, but for kind of the broader globalist cause of freedom and democracy worldwide. You know, I mean, that that is the Bush doctrine, right? That was what George W. Bush said in his second inaugural address when he was reelected. That became exactly what you saw there in the Bush presidential library in 2005. So it, it, it really is kind of terrifying. But to kind of go back to what we were trying to kind of tease out there as the Trump doctrine. So I think you and I both agree that a moralistic neoconservative foreign policy is wrong. It, it is unconservative. It shows no epistemological humility to kind of go full Edmund Burke. I mean, it's, it's fundamentally full of hubris and ego and all of that. But on, on the other hand, America obviously is a superpower. We, we cannot simply just 
go full kind of hermit mode either, right? So talk to me about what you would prefer a, a more robustly intellectually coherent foreign policy to actually look like. Well, that's a very good question because the answer to that question is um, is the devolution of that decision-making process or rather the decision-making process being made in a more transparent way and in a more local way. Um, now, I don't mean that you should have, um, you know, town councils debating whether or not to arm uh, the Ukrainians. Uh, but what I mean is that when, when the American public are asked to put their shoulder to the wheel for an international concern, they're actually very rarely uh, exposed to the level of debate on national television, national radio, um, or, or in person, in maybe, maybe actually in their towns and communities about those issues. And I think to France, as an example right now, of somewhere where you recently had uh, Eric Zemmour, you know, this, this you know, right-wing, um, come out of nowhere, extremely um, anti-immigration, extremely pro-French culture, traditional French culture candidate, debating on television for two hours on national television with the communist candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. And I just thought, wow. I mean, if anybody had watched that, you've got to watch it with subtitles on unless you speak French. But if you had watched it, you would realize what you're missing today in the United States, which is that conversation taking place in, 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 in you know, so, so that everybody can make an informed decision. And we don't have that now. Now what I've got is I've got, you know, Raheem Kassam screaming at me on a podcast about it. Then somewhere else I've got, you know, uh, uh, Anderson Cooper screaming the other thing uh, at me uh, on, on my television. And, and none of, you know, none of the conversations actually merge into anything sophisticated, intelligent, or lend to any kind of real long-term theory that the public can get behind. And if the public can't get behind them, you, know, you keep seeing in opinion polls, and I know how we feel about opinion polls, but, but if it is a measure at all, and I still think it is a measure, um, you see this kind of increasing amount of scratching of the head, right? The people who say don't know, unsure, that is a growing number of people when it comes to large issues like this. It became a growing issue when it came to COVID-19, growing issue when it came to the vaccines, growing issue when it comes to foreign policy, the invasion of Ukraine and Russia. And why is that? Because we are necessarily cutting people out of the, the nitty gritty of the conversations that are taking place. And it's one thing, it's hubristic from a populist perspective for me to say that everything must concern, every detail must concern every person. Obviously, that's not going to be the case. It's a choice of people to get involved at that level. But the idea that we have a management class of people who have gone decades now making America poorer, making America less safe, making uh, your civil liberties uh, a, a, a non, non-entity. I mean, I hold in my hand as I'm speaking to you right now. I mean, how about the irony of this? A mask, because I know that I must put this mask in my pocket because I'm getting on a plane in a couple of hours. And the same people who have delivered us all this pseudoscience and pseudo-foreign policy and pseudo-solutions to the world's problems are still the people in charge today. And we have almost, there is almost no mechanism. We won't necessarily get into the election stuff right now, but there is almost no mechanism in America today in real time to hold those people to account. Yeah, no, it's really well said. And it kind of brings me back to something else that I've been saying for a little while now too, which is to even speak of America as having a foreign policy, to even speak of a nation state at all as having an actual concrete foreign policy, 
it kind of assumes that that foreign policy as channeled through the duly elected officials necessarily must reflect the interests of the citizenry. But as I think as you just laid out, we haven't had that in a very long time. I mean, I mean, the foreign policy interests of kind of the NGO cabal and kind of the liberal internationalist cabal fundamentally diverges, I think, from the median American in just tons and tons of ways, especially in the Russia-Ukraine stuff. But let's take it here to a quick break. So we've got Raheem Kassam with us. Stay with us. We'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Raheem, we're talking here about what a conservative foreign policy looks like in the aftermath of this already a boondoggle. I think we can basically already call it a boondoggle, uh, what's happening in, in the Ukrainian theater in Eastern Europe right now. What, one term that you hear get bandied about all the time, of course, is this notion of the national interest, I mean, national interest for, uh, dr- national interest-driven foreign policy. It's certainly a term that I have used. It's certainly something that I subscribe to, but it's kind of downstream of a broader kind of more nationalist imbued sense of what conservatism is and what it means to be conservative. And you're kind of the perfect guy to talk about that with because of how front and center you are obviously with the Brexit movement, with Nigel Farage and all that happening in the UK six years ago. So for the listeners who may be a little less familiar, can you just kind of tell us a little bit more about what your actual involvement there was first? <laughs> um, no, <laughs> I'd have to kill you. Um, <laughs> the, the, the overarching involvement in, in that whole thing started for me in 2010, where I was a conservative party activist working to help David Cameron's government get elected. I mean, there's a, there's a funny old picture actually of David Cameron launching this, uh, conservative party, uh, election campaign right on the River Thames, Big Ben, House of Parliament in the background, uh, the Palace of Westminster. And and there's me sitting behind him on a wall, scruffy haired, shirt untucked, didn't really know what he was talking about. <laughs> I just I just really knew that I didn't like Blair. I didn't like the Iraq war. I didn't like Gordon Brown. I didn't like inflation. You know, all of these things that kind of you, you're feeling around your way and your early 20s about where precisely you fit in. And I thought I thought to myself, well, the Conservative Party seems seems relatively sane and, and, and responsible. And, uh, you know, I, I was studying politics at college, so I knew the histories of parties and the philosophies of the party and so on and so forth. So I thought, I'll get involved here and, and do something. And then immediately after that election, if, if you remember, Cameron went into a coalition with Nick Clegg, coalition government with the Liberal Democrats, and effectively gave the Liberal Democrats everything they wanted and gave the Conservative Party's base nothing that they wanted. Uh, within a couple of years, uh, gay marriage was legalized, a formal uh, legislation was brought forth and passed in the House of Parliament to ensure that Britain had a foreign aid target every year and that it was a legally binding target that it had to reach, i.e. an amount of money, despite what was going on in our country, that would leave our shores and be sent somewhere else. And there was all sorts of scandal about that. Net migration at the time uh, was 
hovering around 350,000 um, people a year, about 650,000 gross migration into the country. If you know anything about England, um, you know, 350,000 is the size of some of oh, our yeah. cities. Oh, yeah. And we're importing that every year. And of course, everything that comes along with that, the National Health Service burgeoning out of control still to this day, wildly out of control. And it was at that time that I, I, I genuinely thought, look, I've got to, I've got to do something a little more ballsy than just following David Cameron down this liberal rabbit hole. Um, and so a man that used to come around the Westminster pubs, drink a couple of pints, smoke some cigarettes, is a man now known the world over uh, as Mr. Brexit, right? Uh, Nigel Farage. And, and he was just this guy. He was just this guy that hung out outside the pubs and was was kind of more libertarian, actually, at the time in his way of thinking and the people he used to hang around with and employ. And, and then, Josh, then I got my hands on him. Right? <laughs> he became less libertarian and more and more targeted towards, you know, the, the, the populist national interest. What were people talking about um, on, you know, I was going to say the Dockers, right? Like as if it was back in the 1980s with Enoch Powell. But, but what were the ordinary people in the, in the working men's clubs concerned with? What would you hear about if you knocked on somebody's door and said, what is your concern? with our membership, for instance, of the European Union. And it was really interesting that time, that 2013, 14, 15, as the UK Independence Party kept growing, kept getting seats in local councils, winning local races. Then, of course, they won the European election in 2014, sent the most number of uh, members of the European Parliament from Britain uh, to Brussels, Incredible. all UKIP members, and all hell broke loose. At the time, you know, Nigel, Nigel swaggers into the European parliamentary building and he says, we're going to hold a referendum. Look at this, you know, mandate that we've got from the people. We're going to have a referendum in our country. We're going to leave this globalist institution. And of course, uh, running, uh, I was his chief of staff in the 2015 election and through to 2016, helping with strategy and, and, and really getting the message across to the public because people, people fail to realize the, at the beginning of the 90s, the idea of leaving the European Union was fundamentally a fringe and unpopular oh, yeah, idea. For sure. Um, and and within a couple of decades, we had we turned that on its head. I mean, mostly Nigel, but not not to discount the efforts of all the other people in that party and the the people who supported the cause. Um, and and it was a it was a fairly it was a fairly um, tumultuous time. I remember I tell people I lost a bit of hair on my beard. And it wouldn't grow back <laughs> out of stress. Um, and it's absolutely true. Uh, we didn't have time to, to wash and iron our clothes every day. You know, we'd go up and the British equivalent of TJ Maxx is TK Maxx, by the way. And we would get no up kidding. every morning. I didn't morning. know that. That's hilarious, actually. Yeah. And we'd drive to TK Maxx and we'd fill up a basket full of new clothes for the week, you know, or clothes for the day. We just didn't have time. And we were, we were such a small team, stretched so thin. I mean, it makes Trump's team look massive and, and, and juggernaut-like. And with all the experts in the world, we had almost nothing. I mean, I remember as a 26-year-old, Josh, I was writing the foreign policy section of the UK Independence Party's manifesto wow. for, for, the, for the election, you know? And um, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a stunning time. Uh, but unfortunately, we've now got this Boris character in who's, who's kind of messing up all of our work. <laughs> well, fair enough. But we kind of skipped over the best part of all, of course, which is the 2016 vote where Brexit actually happened. I mean, this this one's fringe idea yeah. actually kind of is is fulfilled. 
And, you know, it's an interesting point of privilege for me on a personal note as well, because we run Nigel Farage to this day regularly at Newsweek. He's a regular contributor for us, mm. and, and, and we love running him. And it really is just one of, the, from my perspective, and I'm an Anglophile, I did a college semester studying in London. From my perspective, it really is kind of one of the most remarkable political stories in my adult lifetime. I, I remember just watching those returns, um, June, I think it was June 2016, just just over yep. just overcome with, with joy, frankly. But that's a wonderful, wonderful lead up to kind of the intellectual meat of what I really want to talk about here, which is this this notion of kind of recovering sovereignty, right, away from kind of the transnational bureaucrats, whether it's in Brussels, whether it's, a, you know, Turtle Bay and in, in the United Nations, NATO, the ICC, the International Court of Justice, whatever. I mean, all these various kind of transnational bodies that are ultimately accountable to no one. It, it seems to me like that is a fundamentally conservative impulse but a more nationalist strain of thought, I, I think, is actually anathema to large swaths of kind of the post-war, kind of Cold War era American conservative movement, right? The kind of folks that I think you and I, you know, in our lesser hours, or perhaps right now in this podcast, would pejoratively label, you know, mm -hmm. conservatism, Inc., right? Folks like that. Mm -hmm. So was that always kind of a philosophical or intellectual misunderstanding from the folks like that who just refused to countenance the idea of, of sovereign nation states as being part and parcel of what conservatism is? Gosh, that's a very difficult question to, to answer in less than four hours. Um, <laughs> I no, I mean, it's such a well, it's such a well framed question because, you know, it's, it, it sort of has a lot to do with national ego, doesn't it? And it sort of has a lot to do with, with um, the, the idea of being an unimportant people. I think about this a lot because obviously Americans are, are a very important people in the world, but also really like to be a very important people right. in the world. And you go back, you go back, and you read a lot of the, the you know, the founding documents and and the Federalist Papers and all of this. And and, and there were so many people who understood that you don't you don't actually have to beat your chest to be impressive. You don't have to you know lord over your adversaries, enemies, counter philosophies in the world. Um, you know, you don't have to stare at them down the barrel of a gun for them to understand your perspective. But somewhere along the way, and this is why I think we need to take the people like Klaus Schwab very seriously about the things they say about um, uh, moving beyond nation states forever and recognizing that corporate interest is actually more important than national interest. I mean, these are the things that, uh, that the, the, the modern liberals, I guess, I guess they would be called, um, because they're, they're kind of one further step beyond the Fukuyama neoliberals now, um, is, that, is that, you know, we've got to take them seriously at that. And instead of fighting the fights of, of 15, 30, 50 years ago about NGOs, and yes, of course, there is a massive NGO problem. I, mean, I, think, anybody, I think most people in NGOs understand that NGOs <laughs> have too much power. Um, but, but instead of fighting that fight, I'm more interested in kind of fighting the battle that's, that's inevitably going to come and is kind of at our doorstep right now right which is which is uh, they are they are now seeking if you go back and read um uh, sir halford mckinder and democracy and ideals or democracy and reality was it called um you will you will the scorn with which they treated the idea of of the league of nations and it's obviously it's success of the united nations it's so it's so abundantly clear that they didn't believe that nations could come together, really come together like that and solve anything amongst themselves. You know, uh, national interest and all the other things were, were, were too, you know, too corrupting an influence to, to really ever get anything done in those chambers. 
And so the idea being now that actually it's the corporates, right? The big corporates, the mega corporates, the giant multinational institutions who are all, by the way, sponsor supporters and attendees of the World Economic Forum. The, the future of the world is actually up to them. I'm, I'm desperately more interested in fighting that fight than looking back and going, right, you know, where, where is it exactly that we lost our way right, 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 as right. a nation in our foreign policy and so on and so forth? We're moving into a totally different time here, totally different. Um, the, the, the concept of nation statehood is so alien now to the left and progressives that, that when we start talking about it, it's like we're talking about, you know, dial up internet to a jet to a zoomer, right? They don't <laughs> understand the concept, let alone why you would sit there through it. Right. But what do um, what do they literally propose? Do they, I mean, do they literally want one global government? I mean, I mean, I guess the question answers itself. That is kind of the end goal, right? Well, it's really interesting, actually, when you do go back and, and, and read and listen to Klaus Schwab on this. He's actually pretty adamant that he doesn't want one centralized global government uh, or global governance source. Uh, but it looks I think you're right that inevitably, uh, let's say you have regional corporate uh, power hubs that eventually they seek to take control over one another and, and so on and so forth. You know, there was there were monopoly games about this once upon a time, weren't there? Uh, that the, it stopped being local landmarks and started being the McDonald's logo and things like that. And uh, yeah, I think the reason I find the Davos Forum and its and its um, you know prognostications for the future very dangerous is because I don't think it's a fully formulated philosophy. I don't think they've even thought about it as far as you and I have on this podcast, which is to say that you can't have a world where power is, is vested in, in unaccountable corporate entities and that those corporate entities are then not just going to act like yesteryear's nation states and invade one another, you know, whatever. Right. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think that is the future that they are thinking about is, is how do you see democracy in the use of the phrase our democracy is a very weasel way of. Uh, uh, putting what they really believe in, in the heart of the, you know, the governing philosophy of the left, which is, I think, best understood through the word our and not the word <laughs> democracy, right? It's well said, yeah. Um, yeah, they, 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 they want their interests protected and they're willing to use your vote to do it. Um, they have realized, however, they can defend their interests without your vote anymore. And that's, that's what the World Economic Forum trajectory is about. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that the same people that are talking about our democracy, obviously, are, you know, the ones that are trying to shut us out from the polls that are trying to keep us from voting. I mean, it's, it's only it's democratic on their terms only, obviously. Um, so I realize I totally ducked your question, by the way. <laughs> you're, you're, you're allowed to do that sometimes, my friend. Um, <laughs> so uh, as far as the Republican Party kind of bringing it back home, what what you know taking like your experiences and like what you came up there with the rise of ukip the uk independent party ultimately kind of culminating in brexit which you know i cannot emphasize this enough which to this day literally is from my perspective one of the most uh, fantastically wild success stories in all of modern western mm -hmm. politics truly and you were you were ground zero for that you literally helped to make that happen so you know if you were kind of in the room right with the uh you know, the elders of the Republican Party, the GOP, what would you tell them? Like, what should they do differently based on what you helped achieve and what you've done over in the UK? Well, Josh, I mean, I'm often in those rooms and, and I know you are too, right? Like we, we have, we are blessed with the ability and the access to shout at these people <laughs> and, 
and I often do. I think that's probably why the invites are becoming fewer and further between <laughs> than, than ever before. Um, you know, Raheem's had three gins again and, and is screaming at somebody from Club for Growth, screaming at the receptionist from Club for Growth. <laughs> you know, um, I I genuinely believe that the this, this modern intonation, I, I'm now calling it the Mook leadership, right? It's McConnell, McCarthy, uh, and, and Ronald Romney McDaniel. Um, it's, it's Mook leadership. And it's Mook leadership because it's clownish. It's it's uh, uh, it, you don't you have these people now who are talking more about what revenge they will exact upon the Democrats, you know, when in inverted commas, when they take control of the House, uh, uh, you know, in, in the early part of next year, um, rather than talking about a, a fully coherent, formulated, uh, even even their favorite, Josh, taxation policy. We're not hearing much of at the moment, but they're not talking about, you know, a fully formulated economic theory. Like, how are we going to restructure this so that people don't actually have to worry about that insane man pushing your prices up at the gas pump? How are we going to put money back in people's pockets? Nobody's talking about that. Nobody. They just want to play this internecine Washington, D.C. That guy stepped on my loafers, so I'm going to step on his twice behavior that people really, really are sick of. And this is the thing I keep telling people. All of these study groups that exist, all of these committees, all of these think tanks, for all of it that exists, Josh, and you know it is a multi-billion dollar industry there on Capitol Hill, what does the right have to show for it? Is there a thing that you pick up every day and you go, man, I'm glad we have this? Is there a book that you're willing to throw across the table like Thatcher did, right? And say, this is what we believe in. These are these no, are the real. No, I mean that that, that really is the million dollar question, right? I mean, I got kind of dunked on on Twitter. I feel like a, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago or so, when I basically said, "What has the fusionist consensus actually got in us?" I mean, and you know, for the listeners who aren't quite up to speed as much as my good friend Raheem is, you know, fusionism is kind of the guiding kind of post war Cold War era conservative philosophy that kind of, uh, I, I think both of us would argue is kind of overly liberalized. Uh, it, it involves a lot, of, a lot of kind of outsourcing of policy and intellectual heft to more libertarian forces here. And I don't know. I mean, I, look, I come from kind of the, the lawyer world, right? So a lot of my friends would answer your question by saying, oh, we've got the Supreme Court. But even then, I mean, this is kind of the crux of my entire <laughs> argument, obviously, is no. <laughs> I mean, we have a lot of people on the court and the courts of appeals who subscribe to our methodology. But as far as the actual results, I mean, Count me skeptical, but um, I mean that's that's it's such a it's such a it's such a cowardly way of, of of getting through. You know, we have temporary control of an institution that sometimes does the things that some people like. I mean, that is not an answer. To no, <laughs> no, it's really not. Um, but you know, unfortunately, we're at a time, so we'll have to continue this another time. But uh, Raheem, thank you so much for joining, and thank you so much, by the way, again for being a very early proponent of the podcast. So we'll definitely make sure to have you back on very soon. Thank you so much. And more power to your elbow. I love, I love this podcast. I love the guests you've had on. So thank you. Anytime. Talk soon. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
thing that I think really stands out in my mind as, as I think about the conversation that Raheem and I just had is towards the end talking about kind of just the higher 35,000 foot altitude level view, if you will, of kind of the running failures, shortcomings, whatever kind of word you want to use to describe it, of the modern conservative movement. I mean, you kind of hear Raheem talking about if you had a book to show, if you had kind of a bullet point list of items to kind of tick off and show, oh, this is what we've fought for. This is what we've been successful at for the past three, four, five decades. Well, what exactly is it? Now, there are, I, I to, to kind of be fair here, okay, like there are a few things that I can precisely pinpoint and say, oh, we actually really have been successful on this front. Gun rights really is kind of one obvious example. And I say this, I'm a little biased. I'm a, I'm a gun owner. This issue is pretty personal to me. I, I, I very much deeply cherish the right to keep and bear arms. I, I've had a concealed carry license for a number of years now and all of that stuff. But the, the right actually has made substantial inroads on that issue, okay? Gun rights have actually exploded in popularity constitutional carry is kind of increasingly becoming the norm in red states, even some purple states. But other than that issue, can you guys, and, and please leave us some comments, and you know, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, why not? please leave us some comments if you think I'm being unfair here. Other than that issue, what has the right actually made inroads on? I'm not talking about treading water. There are, there are a handful of issues where we've treaded water successfully, okay? Religious liberty is one issue. That is an issue where for the most part, and I say this as a former religious liberty litigator, I was of counsel with the First Liberty Institute, which does precisely that. I know what I'm talking about here. We have successfully treaded water, okay? Religious liberty as a matter of kind of Supreme Court constitutional law doctrine. We have done a decent job of playing defense, but we can't go on offense. Go back to the Fulton versus City of Philadelphia case of last summer there when we had a huge opportunity to overturn the Employment Division versus Smith case of 1990, which is a really kind of bad anti-religious liberty decision from actually Actually, surprisingly, the, the late Justice Anton Scalia penned that decision. And we came up short. We did we did not have the votes to overturn that, of course. Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett did not join Thomas Alito and Gorsuch to overturn the Smith case. So we're not making inroads on that issue either. At best, we're playing defense. We're, we're treading water okay, but we're not making inroads. I really can't think of any other issues, guys. I mean, again, tell me if I'm being unfair here, whether it's foreign policy, domestic policy, immigration, culture issues, economic issues. I, I, I can, I, I just cannot think of what exactly kind of the post-war, Cold War era, the fusionist conservative consensus has achieved as far as making substantial, substantive inroads as far as the American right and really kind of the, the broader global right for that matter. But focusing here in America is really what we're trying to do on the show, obviously, for the most part there. Let me know if I'm being unfair, but I, I've had this a similar conversation with any number of friends now for going back months, really kind of years for that matter. It's all kind of up in the air post-2016 election. It's all kind of up in the air post-Donald Trump. And you know what? I think a lot of us are kind of saying, where are the dividends, guys? Where are the returns? And, you know, that's what we're here for. That's what we're kind of doing on this show. We're asking those tough questions. And we're excited to have you guys listening along each week. So we can't wait to have you back next time. Until then, I'm Josh Hammer. Thanks for listening.